June 25th, 2023. I wanted to, this week, uh, continue the class that we began last week, but if you weren't here last week, have no fear. You can stand alone in this class, because I'll briefly summarize in the first minute or two what we discussed last week. We, uh, to a certain extent, began the class last week by citing a Gemara in Masechet Berachot. After the introductory sources, Gemara in Masechet Berachot and Dafhet had the following well-known, almost iconic statement. Miyom shaharav bet ha-mikdash, from the day of destruction of the Mikdash, eno lahakadosh baruchu be'olamo, ela arba amot shel halakha bilvad. God, so to speak, only has as his domain in this world, from the day of the destruction of the Mikdash, the four cubits, the six feet of halakha. That's his personal space to a certain extent. It almost appears, and it's the way many did read it, and until today do read it, as if it's a disparaging gemara to the domain of study and of life known as agada. In other words, the statement in the Gemara is, we don't have a Mikdash any longer, you're searching for God, well obviously you'll find him in the study, in the engagement, in practice, in halakha, in the black and white, in the structure, in the stricture of, of Torah. Agada, the stories, the life experiences, the everything in between, the not defined lines, that's not the real engagement that you should have. But what we suggested over the course of the class from many sources and developments is that that Gemara is more bemoaning the fact. It's a, uh, it's a sorrowful, mournful Gemara. And what I mean by that is it's a description of, well, imagine it as we suggested then as a relationship. When the relationship is strong between husband and wife, between child and parent, or you name it, uh, there doesn't need to be per se, or at the very least, the governing nature of that relationship is not by the laws. It's not we do this and we must uh, not do this, etc. There's something natural about it. That's, so to speak, the agada expression of the relationship. There's no defined rules per se that are determining what we're doing. I know you and you know me and we know as a result how to live with one another. Structure and law is necessary, A, as building that relationship and fashioning it, and furthermore, when there's a severance, when the relationship isn't working, we need to build a lot of structure and rules and laws and nomos in order to bring this back together. The description then of the Gemara, that from the day of the destruction of the Mikdash, you'll, so to speak, only find God in Halakha, is not an ideal. Uh, that's an unideal circumstance. We no longer have an organic, natural connection to him. We can no longer find him in our world, in our daily lives, when we're doing whatever we're doing. We need to only find him instead today in halakha. Uh, that in mind it instructed us and informed us that this life that many people live in which I connect to God through halakha, I connect to God through words of inspiration, is a fractured life. It's a life wherein we're not experiencing a relationship in its fullness. We're living a life today where we don't know how any longer to organically approach him, to truly live life in an engagement together with him, with the capital H. And there's a lot of ramifications with regards to that, none the least being our focus and our engagement in Torah. How do we understand words of Agada? Are they just inspiring? Or are they also informing who we are and what this relationship is about? Halakha, is halakha just telling me what to do? Or is it telling me as well what to feel and what to think and how to reach out? Now that's what we began to discuss. We concluded the class in truth with the Gemara and Masech Berachot later on, on Daf Lamid Bet, where the Gemara says, from the day of the destruction of Mikdash, the same words again, that even though the gates of prayer have been closed, 
the gates of tears are still open. And what we suggested is that's to a certain extent complementing that first statement. In other words, imagine what it means to pray in the formal sense. We walk into synagogue and we open a siddur and we read specific words. That's a structured prayer. There's nothing organic to that. By definition, prayer is supposed to be organic. It's supposed to be my heart, my soul reaching out to God. And from the day of the destruction of the Mikdash, you know what we have left? As Harambam articulates it in his Hilchot Tefillah, we read it in Perek Aleph We now have prayers which are formula, formalized. Uh, we have prayers which are told to you and me what to say. The gates of prayer have to a certain extent been closed. We're no longer reaching out in that spontaneous, soul-wrenching way to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Nonetheless, says the Gemara, but the gates of tears, when we cry, when we're in the throes of life, when we're in the difficult moments, that's when true prayer sprouts up. In other words, what the Gemara again is describing is life as you and I know it is unideal when it's only engaged through acting, through practice, through studying tif halakha. Life instead is a perfect combination and enmeshing of halakha and agadats. For that reason, again, the class is entitled is life and law. The agada is the life expression, is the prayer, is the living environment, is the everything that we do. The law, of course, is the halakha. Uh, for a few more moments, I'd like to develop this thought a bit further and try to express it in one or two other ways that, in my mind, it has been and should be expressed. You see, the Gemara Masech Baba Batra here in the first source on Daf Yod Bet has another one of these, from the days of the destruction from the, of the Mikdash. Amar bi avdimi de min haifa, miyom sheharav bet ha-Mikdash, nitela nevuah min ha-Nevim venitena lachachamim. From the days of the destruction of the Mikdash, prophecy was taken from the prophets and instead given to the wise ones, to the hachamim. An interesting statement in the Gemara. We do know that prophecy in its purest sense is no longer operative. It's no longer in, in a, a part of who we are. I mean, what does it mean it was taken from the prophets and given to the wise ones? Atu hacham the Gemara the opposite direction says, wait a second, you seem to be defining prophets as separate entities, separate beings, than wise people. Prophets need to be wise people as well. The Gemara and Masechet Nidarim and Daf Lamed Zayin Lamed Chet says that a prophet needs to be a wise person to begin with. What sort of statement? Says the Gemara HaChek Amar, Afal Pishen Nitela Min HaNeviim Min HaChachamim Lo Nitela. Even though prophecy was taken from the prophets, something still resides with the wise ones. What does that mean? I've met in my lifetime many wise people. Is this suggesting they have nivuah in some respect? Does that mean, and then what does it mean it was taken from the prophets? The Gemara doesn't give full explanation. And then Amemar makes a statement for some reason or another. He brings sourcing from a pasuk, a derasha, that a wise person is in some way greater than a prophet. What, what, what's the, what's the buildup of this Gemara? What's, what's its underlying message? Then the Gemara has another, stranger perhaps statement. Amar Biohanan, Miyom Shaharav Bet HaMikdash, Nitela Nevuah Min HaNevim, same statement, from the day of destruction of Mikdash, we no longer have in our midst prophecy, but instead of it being bestowed upon the wise people, instead of finding it in a person who's a hacham, Nitena La Shotim Velatinokot. It was given instead, no longer to prophets' prophecy, but to shotim. A shoteh means a silly person, means a person who's uh, clinically insane. And tinokot means children. Children and madmen? 
are the people who now have prophets? I mean, what type of statement is that? And so what I'd like to suggest, of course, again, the next few moments, is these two opinions are dealing with the tension between this halakha and agadah tension with which we began last week and we began this week to discuss. And each of them portrays a different dimension in terms of connection to God, how we can and should be finding it in today's day and age or throughout existence and history. I bring you in the following direction. Let's start with the first statement. The first statement in the Gemara again is from the days of the destruction of the Mikdash, no longer is prophecy found by the prophets, it's only found by the Hachamim. Says Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, in his commentary to the Gemara, his Hidushim, says, even though the prophecy of the prophets was taken, you'll no longer find that. That's what we call that severed connection. That's the vision uh, that we find by Yehezkel uh, and Yeshayahu. That sort of prophecy is no longer. The, now you have to put in quotation marks. The prophecy of the wise ones. It's derived through wisdom that has not ceased, that still exists. They derive and arrive at truth through what's called Ruach HaKodesh, says Ramban Nachmani. Now what's he describing? He's describing to us some sort of dichotomy, some sort of schism between prophecy, Nevoah, and Ruach HaKodesh. Nevoah, the prophets of old had. Ruach HaKodesh, the wise people of present have. What does that mean? I, I do remember the first time I got introduced to such an idea. I read in the book when I was younger, my, my parents willfully brought me to Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky in, in Benebrak. And when we went, I bought one or two books at the time, and he wrote a book called Orchot Yosher. And his book Orchot Yosher has different paragraphs and different chapters on different character traits. And one of them, as I recall, was the first time I was introduced to such a mode of thought that people talk like this. He says, the Gemara says, from after the death of Haggai Zecharyan Malachi, the last of the prophets as we know it, based on our canon of the Tanakh, Nitila Nevoah, we no longer have prophecies, says Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, but you'll find it amidst the wise people. And he gave one or two examples, as I've experienced it myself. People say about this individual, what was he describing? He was describing keen insight, a depth of perception, an ability to listen carefully, to be attuned to existence, to be a part of your life when they hear your dilemma, if it's a wise person who's really worth their salt. Uh, they have something. We call that Ruach HaKodesh, says Ramban Nachmani. What's the difference between Nivu'ah and Ruach HaKodesh in this uh, respect? Interestingly, uh, it's a, a well-known comment, and he repeats it in several other places, Nitziva Velozhin in his book Ha'amek Davar, he's commenting on a, a midrash of the Hachamim. It's on the midrash of the Hachamim where they state that Sarah had a greater Ruach HaKodesh than Avraham. Gasp. Please. Uh, says says Nitziv, he says, how could that be? That's the Nitziv gasp out loud. He says, how could it be? How's that possible? My, no, I'm staring right at you. So how could that be? Abraham, look at how many encounters, how many prophecies, how many direct, seemingly close connections he had to God. And Sarah, there's one encounter, God even rebukes her in the one uh, uh, spoken out or spelled out encounter with God in the Torah. And yet, the rabbis say it in the context of, well, Sarah told you to send away Hagar, anything Sarah says, so they say it in that context. Says Nitzvah, well, what's happening? On the one hand, 
God does seem to have a prophetic inspiration to Abraham more than Sarah. It's not diminishing in Sarah. So how could they nonetheless say that Abraham is tafil to Sarah? And maybe it was a one-time encounter, one-time thing. She had insight over here. Abraham didn't. You're going to say she had more Ruach HaKodesh. Says Nitziv, pay attention to the words. Ruach HaKodesh and Nevuah. We can and must distinguish, at least rabbinically, between two such concepts. Two entities. He suggests nivuah is above and beyond knowledge and depth of perception. You and I can and should be spending our life trying to understand God's ways, to understand the world better and so forth. That's what we'll achieve through that, a power of intuition, a power of understanding. That's Ruach HaKodesh. We think about Ruach HaKodesh, well, something sanctified. That's Ruach HaKodesh. Nivuah is beyond that. Nivuah is there's some sort of spark of inspiration from outside of my rational conditioned training uh, that uh, gave me an understanding beyond that. The suggestion of Nitziv is that Sarah, and he gives one or two reasons why, we'll discuss one very easily, had and was bestowed with a greater Ruach HaKodesh, her intuition her understanding, her greatness as a person who got to the bottom to the bottom line of all circumstances was greater than Abraham. It doesn't mean that Abraham didn't have more divine inspiration in a prophetic sense, in a conversational, in some way, dialogical uh, uh, situation. But ultimately speaking, Sarah was greater in Ruach HaKodesh. Think about the circumstance where they say it in. She's dealing with interpersonal issues. She's dealing with, there's Hagar who's causing problems in this marriage. This doesn't take, well, it takes a good psychologist to understand, well, Hagar needs to be sent away. Says Nitziv Sarai, ironically, because her less involvement with the society. Avraham, we know it from the text, we certainly know it from the rabbis, was involved with people at all times, involved in building communities and movements and so forth. You have, by definition, less ability to focus clearly and sufficiently on every matter at hand. Sarai, Sarah, less involved, less engaged in that respect, was able to fine-tune her ability to understand people, to understand circumstances, to understand life itself. Ruach HaKodesh, then, in contrast to Nivu'ah, we might stop, pause, and realize. We might define as, so to speak, our halakha domain. Ruach HaKodesh is where I could define it where I can say, I studied this, I paid attention to you, paid attention to the world around me. I'm the hacham, I'm not. Imagine for a moment, I'm the hacham of Ramban Nachmani of the Gemara. We no longer have prophecy. The Avraham ways, the above and beyond, the organic, spontaneous, I found God, I feel him in this circumstance, that's what's lost. What we do have, for those who are imbued with it, for those who have worked to it, is Ruach HaKodesh. We still have that, but again, understand why I mention this in our context. It means that the Gemara, back to source number one, says, from the days of the destruction of the Mikdash, you want to know what has vanished, what's evaporated, what we no longer have? The Nivuah. The encounter with God outside of rules, outside of strictly governed and defined, this is what and this is how. The I just know it because he's my, uh, he's, he's, he's the person, I, he's the being I talk with. He, I just know it because I live life and I'm able to feel it right. That nivua is gone. Ruach HaKodesh remains. 
Ruach HaKodesh is the domain of halacha. Ruach HaKodesh is where we as human beings piece together what we're given and say, well, this makes sense. Uh, that doesn't make sense. Nivwa is beyond. So that first statement in the Gemara then is identical, I'm suggesting, to the way we're reading that statement in Masech Berachot and Davchet. From the days of destruction of the Mikdash. You want to know where you're going to find God, so to speak? In halacha. Not because that's ideal. Not because that's the only place. But how are you and me going to step out of our box? We're confined by a severed connection with God. We're no longer able to have that intimate relationship which rises above, so to speak, the structure and stricture. That's that statement. In truth, Hatam Sofer, in source number four, to be Moshe Sofer in his commentary to the Gemara and Bava Batra, has, a, has an, a similar interpretation of this matter. He takes it a step further, though, because he suggests that that's the contrast. He doesn't say it the way I'm saying it, but I'll say it this way. That's the contrast to the next opinion, that of Rabbi Yohanan. Think for a moment about children and madmen or women. Children are able to, you know, I think about, oh, I'm going to mess up the name. Mike, I should have spoken to you before. And what's it called? The Emperor's Clothing? What's the name of that? Say it again. Okay, something along those lines. Everyone seems to know the story. I don't need to say the right name. However, who was it that defined in that story the fact that the emperor did not have clothing on? It was the child. Why was no one else able to do that? Because everyone else was taken in by the constructs and the confines of societal norms. If everybody else is saying he's wearing clothing, he must be wearing clothing. A child is oftentimes the only one who doesn't have, so to speak, the halakha, which binds them. They're not taken into what are other people saying, what have I been conditioned to think. A child has that natural way to them where they haven't yet lived long enough, haven't experienced life in that respect, haven't been forced into situations where they need to take into account social norms or social visions and understandings. The statement in turn of the second statement of Rabbi Yohanan, which by the, who by the way was living in Eres Israel and living a bit, we remember this and there's ways to prove this, more of an organic lifestyle, even during time of exile is, you wanna know where you'll find pristine wisdom? Ironically, not in the Hachamim, but in the Ketanim. What about the madmen? Well, first for Ketanim, I have, among many others, these are the types of things that keep me up at night. So source number five, the Gemara Masechet Shabbat and Davkof Dalit has the following statement. Amre le Rabbanan le Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. The Chachamim said to Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, it's a shame you weren't in the Midrash. Atu darbdekeha idna lebe Midrasha. You should know there were some children. Darbdekeh means children who came to the Midrash. Ve amru and they said words. Da'afilu bimei Yoshua binun la itmar kavatayu. Even in the days of Yoshua binun, all the way back times, I never heard something like that. And then the Gemara goes on, interesting circumstance to give derashot for each of the letters. It's one of these mystically inclined Gemarot, the letters of the Jewish, of the Hebrew alphabet, what they represent and how you're understanding them and so forth. But did you hear the statement? We heard from children something above and beyond what you and I could have thought about. They had this ability to break out of that box that we're all placed within. The Midrash, somewhat of a well-known Midrash, and source number six being Doresh Pasuk, in uh, Echa, which says, Oleleha halechu shevi, lifnesar, viyasami batsion kol hadara, Oleleha, 
Mipi olelim v'yonkim, the Pasuk says. Oleleha is a reference to children, to young children. So the Midrash says, you should know, you want to know when God's Shekhinah, God's uh, indwelling, departed and uh, vanished to a certain extent in the feelings, in the sense of how we can find it manifested best. Look at how great and how, how, how uh, beloved are young children in front of God. Galita Sanhedrin, before the destruction of the Mikdash, the Sanhedrin, the high supreme court, was galeta, was exiled. Based on the rabbinic understanding, God's indwelling in its fully manifested sense was still there. It didn't uh, get exiled. The mishmerot kehuna, the different uh, uh, families and legions of the Kohanim and the Mikdash, they too were exiled. The Shekhinah was still there. Uh, it's at the moment where the children were exiled. That's when the Shekhinah departed. Again, it's the same statement, at least in my mind. You're searching for God today, you won't find it any longer unless you break out of the constructs of Well, you'll only find it in Halakha because you and I can only find it within Halakha. However you break out of it, you're a child. A child can ironically have that depth of perception. So the statements then in the Gemara, again, the first one was that from the day of the destruction of the Mikdash, prophecy left the prophets, and now you'll find it by the wise people. How are the wise people? Rational thought, Ruach HaKodesh, objective, concrete, black and white. Talk to the mathematicians, talk to the physicists, talk to the scientists, talk to the lawmakers, to the lawyers. To, that's where you'll find God today. It's the best you're going to do. Uh, the next opinion would be Ohanan says, no, wait a second. I know you and I, we don't have that sort of connection any longer. I know society and exile and the distance from the source has caused that we can only find it within, so to speak, halakha, ruach hakodesh, but you'll find it still by a few who are still outside of it. Number one, children. We might not want a place, and that's of course the danger of this sort of conversation. Children should not be leading us. They do need to have a certain sense of experience. They need to have a certain sense of responsibility. However, and as a result, we won't walk away from this class, I hope, saying, well, let's just tear down the halakha system, or quite the opposite. We're nonetheless searching within that for the moments, for the situations where I can say, in between the lines of the halakha, I can intuit, I can feel, and I'm searching for what is true connection to God? What is it that this relationship is supposed to look like? What about the madmen of the Gemara? I would argue madmen are identical in this respect, to children, but for example, I just I mentioned it last week, I just finished this book by uh, Joseph Berger on uh, Elie Wiesel, and uh, Elie Wiesel, of course, was the author of Night and a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he wrote many books, his most famous of them being Night. As a matter of fact, throughout the book, it talks about how he felt very bad. He wrote some 30-something other books. Nobody cares at all about any of them. There were a lot of scathing uh, book reviews against his other books, but Night is the one that's remembered. But in this book they cite, I didn't read it, Twilight as well, another book he wrote, and it's a novel. And uh, in the novel, it begins with the following words. As a boy, Raphael feared madness, but was drawn to madmen. As a matter of fact, Elie Wiesel has two or three themes which run through most of his writing. Silence, many ways, he's very obsessed with silence, but madmen, he's obsessed with madmen. He talked about the madmen, Moshe from his, Moshe from his, uh, from his shtetl, from his village in Europe. He talked a lot about madmen. So here he was drawn to madmen. Why, what's the power of a madman? Madmen can say anything, do or undo anything, 
without ever having to explain. Madmen are free, totally free. The description of, of Wiesel is, in this novel, a madman's outside of the constructs of, I have to think this way. I'm taught to behave that way. No, that can't be right. To a certain extent, I read once or twice in the memoirs of Albert Einstein, he said about himself, he said that he oftentimes either got it perfectly or was way off in whatever he was thinking about because he thought, so to speak, like a madman. Not in the negative sense, but in the, his mind just roamed. So he, I, thankfully, I've been blessed. I've had one or two students over the course of years. I wouldn't call them madmen. Madmen has a negative connotation. I would call them brilliant in the respect that they've never been trained to think like me and you. They think out of the box. Sometimes they'll say something, my draw will drop by how profound and how out of the box, how beautiful that was. Sometimes I'll say, so I'll say, you're so off, you missed everything. That's the description. So if you're searching, so to speak, past destruction for the outside of law, governance, halakha, for the agadah domain, madman. Elie Wiesel as well, in, uh, in source number eight in this biography, uh, so it's one of his students, I think it is, or a colleague, Serkman, I don't remember who he is, also recalled how Wiesel openly let his students know of his affection for madmen. He wasn't embarrassed about it. One time a disheveled man with wild-eyed demeanor stood on Commonwealth Avenue. He was a professor in Boston University, Wiesel, so that's where this took place preaching that the end of the world was approaching. Wiesel listened to him attentively. When his students wondered why he would waste, it should say, his time doing so, Wiesel replied, who knows who's a prophet? Madness is the only way you can cope with a world that's gone insane, he said, making that somber statement with what Serkman described as a beautiful, radiant smile. Yes, sir. Based on that, Elie Wiesel talks about the madman who came back from having seen the... That's Moshe, Moshe the madman. He saw the mass shootings and he told them right. they're coming, the Nazis are coming. Right. And they said he's mad. They couldn't believe right. that, that, three, that so many thousands of people could be shot. Right. Uh, did, you read, did you read in the, in, the, in the burger book about this? Yes, sir. He says that, uh, again, what my mother's referring to is in, in night, he refers to how the madman of Saget, which is the town that he lived in, the village he lived in, came back and was describing, because he had been deported and he somehow escaped, and he said there's concentration camps and they're being gassed and they're being incinerated and so on and so forth, and nobody believed him. And there was all sorts of debate and question about whether this could have happened. There was all this factual check, fact-checking on Elie Wiesel, whereas the, the, this biographer suggests, says, listen, let's leave the veracity, the specifics of this tale aside. Let's understand, it may have been true, said, but regardless, the point is, and, and that's, that's right, but the point is, what he was speaking to was how the only person who was able to speak like that at the time of Nazi Germany some 80 years ago was the madman who nobody would listen to. Everybody else was boxed into it. It can't be, it just won't be. But for our purposes, then that I'm suggesting is the two opinions we have here in the Gemara. We have the Rabbi Ohanan second opinion, who says you'll still find it outside of the constructs of, so to speak, halacha and ruach hakodesh. And you have that first opinion, that would be Avdimi Dimin Haifa, who says, no, 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 you're going to find it only in the hachamim. Nivuah is, is, is gone. It's that statement he has, by the way, which is very instructive and in telling Hatam Sofer calls attention to it. Amara Meimar, the hacham adif minavi. That's for safety reasons. A hacham, a person who thinks rationally, is safer 
is more relatable than a Navi, than so to speak, quote unquote, a madman. In other words, it's not per se in terms of level, in terms of engagement, in terms of uh, a perception, it's in terms of relatability, it's in terms of who am I and you going to relate to, especially when we're severed from a true source of God. Uh, but who are we gonna turn to? The person who we understand, or the person who has lofty ideas, who's a hit or miss, so to speak, type of individual. That's what you have in that Gemara, again, the reason I mention this again and again is to make the point, and we will and have noticed the subtle circumstances where it does creep in to our tradition. It's within a tradition which is staunchly grounded in halakha, in the nomos, in the law, in the lawgiver, in the law of abiders. There's still a certain adherence, a certain reverence for how can I find a connection, so to speak, above and beyond? How can I transcend? I can't defy it, that's dangerous. But how can I transcend? To this extent, the Mishnah in Masechet Kiddushin, a well-known yet often misunderstood Mishnah says, Masinu she'asa, at the end of the fourth chapter of Masechet Kiddushin, she'asa Abraham Avinu et kola Torah kula ad shiloni The statement is, Abraham Avinu fulfilled the entire Torah before it was given. Shene emar, as the Pasuk says, Ekev ha'sheshama Abraham bekoli va'ishmor mishmati mitzvotai toratai ve'chukotai, so the Pasuk describes how Abraham fulfilled all of my statutes. Uh, I was, I've mentioned this more than once, I was as he was a young child, my oldest son was in kindergarten, came home and said to me, can't understand how Lot was serving matzah because it was Pesach, isn't Pesach to commemorate the exodus from Egypt which hadn't yet occurred. So I said, well, ask your Mora. I said, I did. My Mora said to ask you. So it was a great, great opportunity to have to deal with one of, uh, you know, difficult circumstance situations with my five-year-old son at the time. I said to him, and, I, and I, I stood to my word, I believe. I said, we can't. I said, right now, let's just learn it and enjoy it. We'll talk about it in the future. And I did, because I remembered the story, and I did talk about it again. There's a certain depth. There's a certain statement of truth that the Hakamim are trying, that Rashi's trying to get across, which, in my opinion, doesn't mean that they ate matzah on Pesach. It does mean something very critical and, and, and significant, the beginning of which I'd like to talk about right now, and that is that when the hachamim, there's, a, there's the following strand of thought amongst many, nefesh hachayim is a very important one to, to derive this from because we talked about nefesh hachayim last week. Nefesh hachayim is a reactionary book to a certain extent to the rise of Hasidut. So he's living in Lithuania, in Valazhin, it's Rabbi Hayim of Valazhin, and he's looking to do away with what he saw as an antinomian, an against law sect of Jews known as Hasidim. You and I today say Hasidim, who could find a more religious person than a Hasid? Eh? Uh, so pious and so righteous and all the humrot in the early stages, less known to the non-scholars, Hasidut was a reaction to all those structures and strictures. It was, let's find God through the song. Let's find him in the forest. Let's find him out. And there was a big fear. There was a, until today there's a fear. I mean, uh, I, I remember uh, more than once hearing in yeshivot where they slammed Chabad Hasidut in the Syrian community, everybody loves Lubavitch for good reason. Over in the yeshivot, in the, in the traditional Lithuanian yeshivot, there's nothing worse than Chabad Hasidut. Uh, I had a rabbi whose father-in-law wouldn't walk up a street in Benebrak which had the name, I think, Baal Hatanya or something. He wouldn't walk on streets with the name associated with Chabad. Why not? They said Chabad is a destruction of Judaism. 
How so? Well, first, there was a fear of the messianism. True fear. Secondly, there were and are certain areas which are hard to explain why they do what they do. I've mentioned more than once how in Yeshiva University, when I was uh, a student at Yeshiva University, there was a Chabad day. The Chabad Bachrim tried to take over a little bit and get people engaged. And so they put the schedule on the wall. And so the schedule said breakfast at 9 o'clock, davening at 10 o'clock. I, I, I was standing next to him. I actually was friends with one. It was from Morristown. I said to him, why'd you put that up? What are you expecting? He said, okay, we'll take off the 10 o'clock. We'll move it early. I said, no, but you put eating beforehand and too late shahrit. What we think? He said, that's the way we always do it. What type of question is that? They were, in other words, this areas. Now, you and I can justify. I want to be full as I'm praying. I might be more engaged. I want to pray later, so I'm more rested. Halakha, though, and it attracts the people and all that sort of stuff. And, and they may have been successful, for all I know. I don't, I don't, I don't remember the outcome of it. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a part of it. But what I can say is there was even small remnants until today. My brother-in-law, for, one of my brother-in-laws, for, for a long time was very involved with Chabad Hasidu. He had a Chabad in Long Island next to his home. And so we went to pray there on a Saturday night. And we got up to Sa'udah Shalishit. And they put a little bit out on the table. And the rabbi was barely eating. So I said, what's going on? So I, I was back. Until today, not so bashfully. So I said to him, why aren't, why aren't we eating for... So we don't eat in Shalosh Shudas. Why don't we eat in Shalosh It's the halacha, maybe lechem mishneh, you don't do whatever. That's, that's how I'm saying. Now they have certain interpretations, but there's less of a fear. And so what I'm mentioning is, in the early stages of Hasidut, there was a tremendous fear that this is going to take people away from practice of halacha. We're going to found a new religion. Nefesh HaHayim reacting to that writes a lot about this. Among other places, in his Perakim, and Perak Zayin of Nefesh HaHayim, he talks about the fact that the Gemara, the Mishnah, describes, and elsewhere as well, how the forefathers observed the entire Torah. He says, first and foremost, let me explain to you what that means. He says, what it means is, and, and there's a lot of beauty to this, and then you almost fear and realize his fear, what he's saying. He says, what it means is, he quotes a Midrash, says, Hanoch, the Pasuk says, Hanoch was Elohim, This is in Parashat Bereshit, someone named Hanoch disappeared. Say the rabbis, he connected to God through uh, sewing shoes. That's who Hanoch was. And he was such a righteous individual. Sewing shoes? What mitzvah is there in sewing shoes? What does that mean? The suggestion of Nefesh HaHayim is that the forefathers or the people who were righteous and wise once upon a time found ways to arrive at the truth of the Torah without the halacha system, without the black and white do this and do that. They could, so to speak, sew shoes and be eating, quote-unquote, matzah on Pesach. Somehow, I mean, we know it in our own lives, there are experiences which engender certain feelings, certain emotions, certain connections to God uh, that other circumstances wouldn't. We have mitzvot that are supposed to position us to feel that. Uh, you know, lehavdil, I mean, it's, it's not my experience per se. I could hear someone saying, they're wrong. I could hear someone saying, I'm more inspired. Not that they're wrong. They're t- speaking personally. I'm more inspired. Okay. I do know someone who talks. Someone a few summers ago, I said to him, I don't see on Shabbat morning in Eleanor's. I was, was it something wrong about the Knesset? He said, look, I was in his home, he said, look 
at the view here and tell me that you would go to the synagogue. I said, what do you mean? He said, I promise you, I feel closer to Hashem when I look out at the ocean than when I do at the ark. I'm not taken away from what he was saying. I understand what he said. That sort of thought, though, Nefesh HaChaim goes on to explain, says once the Torah was given, once we have structure and stricture, once there are laws, we don't have that sort of thinking person. It's not about a minyan. This was not, that was not the message of that, right? I'm talking about you know, eating the matzah on Pesach. I'm talking about the Shemirat Shabbat. I'm not talking about a minyan. A minyan, we could talk about Siman Sadi and Shohan Aruch Yishtadil Me'od. It was just an example. But what I mean is, Nefesh HaChaim, though, is, is explaining to us the vision of the rabbis when they describe the forefathers fulfilling the Torah is, so to speak, the childlike engagement with God. It is the madman engagement with God. It sounds ridiculous to say it, but that's what it is. It's the organic, spontaneous, I'm living life. I know where to find God. I can feel this naturally. The statement of the rabbis bemoaning that, the way we began this all. Masechet Berachot is, Miyom Shecharav Et HaMikdash, the day of the destruction of Mikdash, not only do we have halacha, we only have halacha. The world of agada, the world of, by the way, the word agada, people oftentimes, maybe rightfully, assume it means hagada. Eged, alternatively, I once saw this from Rabbi Moshe Shapira. Eged means to be connected. The buses in Israel are called Eged because they connect you. Agada might be a connectedness, a rootedness in life. No, it's agada, is that other domain, structure of mikdash. We have halacha left. We're not able to even come close to the avot in that respect. It's, in, it's along these lines, Rabbi Hanum Wasserman in source number 11 makes this point. He says in mitzvot we have two dimensions. We have the commandment of God and we have the underlying purpose and reason for it. And his statement in turn is the avot got the underlying purpose and reason. The, the command of God they just didn't have. So when we say they fulfilled the whole Torah, we mean they got to the core of it. We imagine it so. The Torah describes it as such. They were having prophetic inspiration and connectedness. They had, so to speak, the Bizman Shebet HaMikdash Kayam vision. They had an ability beyond and transcending, or not even transcending, there were no laws during their time period. Again, the danger is clear, I believe, in all this, but I'll conclude this segment, lastly, with uh, something that I once saw cited and looked it up, in Shivheha Ran. Ran is not Rabbeinu Nisim of, Gir of Girona over here. Ran is Rabbi Nachman of Bretzlav. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, a very uh, a famous uh, uh, rabbi and leader of Hasidut, um, who passed away some time ago. Everybody knows about him and Uman, etc. So uh, there are a lot of quote-unquote dangerous statements in his name. He was obsessed with chaos. Kabbalah is obsessed with chaos. The question is how we define chaos. Do we live a chaotic life or do we live a structured and strictured life by halacha? So here's the description. Again, the danger I mentioned purposefully at the onset, at the same time, read within it the beauty, read within it the passion for an organic connection. Amar, it says here in Siman Kafbet, he said, Rabbi Nachman, I thought to myself, what will I do if he's sold off to, I'm making the words up over here, to an island in the middle of nowhere? He won't have the ability to perform mitzvot. Nobody knows him. Nobody will give him the ability any longer. Nobody will know to redeem him. He got very nervous. What's my connection to God? Uh, how would I live? Don't I want to be able to live in a way that I'm connected under all circumstances? And then he thought more, he pondered more deeply. 
עד שזכה שבעל השגה שיוכל לעבוד את השם יתברך אפילו כשלא יוכל חס ושלום לקיים את תוספות. until he realized that I can worship God even, even under circumstances where I can't perform מצוות. כי השיג את העבודה של אבות העולם. because he, uh, he understood, he grasped the worship, the connectedness of the avot שהיה להם קודם מתן תורה שקיימו כל המצוות אף פי שלא עשו את המצוות כפשטן כמו יעקב אבינו שקיים מצוות טבילין על ידי המקלות אשר בצל כידו וכיוצא בזה עד שהשיג איך לקיים את כל המצוות בדרך זה כשיהיה אנוש שם במקום שימכרו אותו חס ושלום until רבי נחמן was not only assuaged, not only relieved it almost seems as if he was inspired you know how to find God in that circumstance? without the mitzvot. There's something very telling about that tale that he was willing and wanted to tell his children this. There's a danger, no doubt, if you remember the quote from Heschel last week, is that agada without halacha is wild, right? Halacha without agada is dead. In other words, that wildness you can hear over here without the structure, without something that's binding and determining for us, we're losing our way. Huh? You'll say, this is how you inspire yourself. It's a, it's a postmodern world gone wild. Uh, alternatively, to, to appreciate that within my life of halacha, within my life of connection to God, I'm searching for within the binding nature, the moments of madman mentality, the moments of the child who sees that the king, the emperor is not wearing clothing. I'll conclude with uh, just one or two uh, last points. We don't need to read them inside, but I'll tell you the direction in this. Bet Yosef, that's Rabbi Yosef Karo in source number 13 in Siman Yod, has the following bold statement. The debate, the conversation is not relevant to us right now, but the opinion of Rashi arises. Now, Bet Yosef Rabbi Yosef Karo is looking to bring forth a normative practice. This is what you should do. There are many different opinions. Here's how you follow. Of course, he turns it into Shulchan Aruch afterwards. So he's got lots of opinions. Harambam and Rif and Rosh and Rashi and Tosa. He's got lots of opinions. How does he scale? How does he deal? In Siman Yod, that's at the onset of his book, and in chapter 10, he deals with Rashi's opinion on a matter. And his bold and famous statements are, Rashi is not taken into account over here. Kevan de Rashi, mefareshu velopaskan. Rashi interprets the Gemara. He's not a paskan. He doesn't determine law. Here's where Harari shudders. I get scared about such a statement. What do you mean? There's no, are you telling me exile at its best, at its worst? Rashi can only explain, but he's not, not going to follow him in interpreting. Hacham Ovadia Yosef in his introduction to Halichot Olam when he deals with many of the principles of Pesach Halacha, he deals with this concept, this issue, and he explains, he says, the question has been asked and will be asked. How could you say such a thing? Rashi, he even mentions the acronym. People say it means Rabban Shel Yisrael. Of course, it's Rabbi Shalom Yitzhaki. Rabban Shel Yisrael is the greatest. His interpret quotes from Meiri, who says about him. Meiri is a southern French uh, Provençal rabbi, some several hundred years later. Says one word of Rashi will interpret, will explain to you all the secrets in a sugya, in an issue, whatever, etc. I've, I've mentioned more than once. I was once in a class with Rabbi Leichter. He should live and be well. And so someone raised his hand in class. It was a bunch of young married people in Israel. And they said to him, yeah, "We talk about Rashi and his commentary to the Torah. So great and so wise." He said, I looked into the sourcing. They're all just, he's quoting from Mitrashim. What's the greatness of Rashi? I'm not Rabbi Leichter, don't get angry at me. Don't shoot the messenger, but Rabbi Leichter shuddered, literally. He said, what? 
Rashi, like that? And as he was describing them, he said there's a great, and there was, I mean, if you pay attention to his wording, I'm not, uh, he's not superhuman, but he was careful and deliberate in every word and every letter that he put down. To, and we, we have tradition to read his words in such a fashion. Says Cham Yosef from many, from, uh, from many of the poskim who after Beit Yosef, who said, what are you talking about? Rashi is the greatest. Says Meiri himself, and that same paragraph says, but his expressed purpose was perush, was to interpret the Gemara, not to be posek. He quotes from a Gemara, that if you see or hear something, but it's not expressly said, and you should practice this way, you're in a Gemara class, you're in a Musa class, it's not a halacha to practice it. You shouldn't follow it. Why? Because maybe the mind was not fully wrapped around that. Maybe when the person was saying it, they didn't have in mind practice. For me, a little tragic. Realistic, no question, but tragic. Don't we want the halakha to be organically sprouted? I study the Gemara, I know what to do. I went to work, I know what to do. But the statement nonetheless is there's particular dangers. I was going to do it in a later class, but it's a good opportunity to talk about it now. There's a book called Ve'alehu Lo Yibol. Ve'alehu Lo Yibol is a student who lived in Sha'ar Chesed of Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Arbach, who passed away in 1995, one of the great Ashkenazic poskim of called the previous generation. Ve'alehu Lo Yibol is an allusion to a pasuk that the rabbis describe paying attention to every word of great people. And so this book has many anecdotes where people asked or observed Rabbi Arbach doing this or saying this. They asked him off-the-cuff moment about this. They saw him do this, and then he wrote it all down. I mean, I don't think it was his purpose, but in today's day and age, if you pay attention to the Jewish book market, it's a great, great selling market for this. Great rabbis die. People spend t- 10 years with them. You could sell 10 books off of that. I mean, you know, you have to think about the, the dividends. That's, that's it. But anyway, so he writes this book, I think, fully L'Shem Shamaim, and he puts in it introductions, letters, letters of recommendation, etc. One of them is from a son of Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach. It's a michtav uh, or something like that. It's rebuke. And he says, this is not the type of book which should be published. This book does reflect things my father said or maybe did, but never wanted publicized. Maybe said it for a circumstance. Maybe said it in a situation. Maybe wasn't understood. Maybe wasn't thinking clearly. There's a description in my mind of, on the one hand, oh, fantastic. On the one hand, let's learn this. Let's engage in this in an organic fashion. The Gemara has a statement, It's greater to service and deal with a great person than to study with them, because you get real-life examples. At the same time, the Gemara says, but don't go to the bank with that. The expression bemoaning the fact that it's hard to execute the principle of the matter, the idea that underlies it though, that we learn from every circumstance, from the organic, from the in-between the lines, in-between the word situations, from what's not in Shulchan Aruch, from what I can intuit, from what is and to outside of it, and there's no question in any of that that's an ideal. Day of destruction Mikdash, however, hard for us to get past the Ruach HaKodesh and into Nevoah. I'll conclude with this, though. There's a little consolation, a little consolation. Even for me, I'll shudder a little. That's the suggestion. Suggestion. Besides the women and the children, yes, yes. 
I'll conclude with this source 15 and we'll come to 16 and 17 on another occasion. Source 15 is from a book called Minuhat Shalom in the 12th volume of Minuhat Shalom. I have not read through first 11, but I've, uh, I've, I've read here and there bits and pieces of it. It's written by Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Sofer, an important uh, rabbi today who lives in Yerushalayim. And in it, he takes up this issue. Was Rashi just a mefaresh, just interpreting, or was he a posek? Is he also determining law? So he quotes from Bet Yosef, our Siman Yod. What was that? Source number 13. He says, everybody quotes this widely. Everybody knows that Rashi is just interpreting the Gemara. Don't learn halakha from it. And then he says, how many more times, we can guess, how many more times does Beit Yosef, does Rabbi Yosef Karo repeat this principle in his work? He should be repeating it throughout. Every time there's an opinion of Rashid, oh, but we don't follow it because he's a mefaresh, not a posek. Every single time it's a question, are you going to determine, no, not Rashi, he's not a posek. Says Rabbi Yaakov Hayim Sofer, guess how many more times? Zero. Not only is it zero more times he invokes this rule, there are many occasions when he, quote, should have, not that it was an ambiguous situation, he should have, and he goes with it, and he got a whole long list of them, because he's absolutely brilliant before computers, he goes through a long list of circumstances where A, B, C, all the way through Z, Bet Yosef should have said, but we don't follow Rashi because he's not a posaic, and he nonetheless does, which means to say there is and must be in our own lives an opportunity within the constructs of Halakha, within that confined zone which is necessary. Again, agada without halakha is wild. We need the halakha. But there at the same time needs to be. But I learned this passage of Gemara. What a beautiful story. Does that leave me just inspired? Or does that change the nature of my relationship? Does it inspire my actions to be different? I learned alternatively, not what we're focused on as much. But if you remember, we talked about this from Rabbi Salvechik last week. I learned the halakha. How does that teach me how to think and how to, how to understand? because halakha without agada is dead. The, the suggestion and the direction and the pleading nature of me in these classes is to realize that life is experienced as a Jew, as an Oved Hashem, as a person who's truly seeking a relationship, not just with halakha, that's a bemoaned statement, a mournful comment of the rabbis, nor just with agada that teeters on the side of Christianity and has fears of conservative and reform and reconstructionist visions where I'm going to tear down the system. That's the wild nature of man where you lost the tradition entirely, but it's with a perfect synthesis between the Agadah and the Halakha, as I described it, the life and the law. Baruch Adonai Amen, Amen.